welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast. I am your host, Cody McBroom, the CEO of Tailored Coaching Method, a world-renowned online coaching company. This podcast is built to help you create a life by design. That's what the Tailored Life is. It's choosing to blaze your own path, make your own decisions, and create a life you desire. So in this podcast, you're going to learn ways to optimize your body, optimize your mind, optimize your relationships and optimize your business and career this is the podcast for personal development junkies and people who can't stop growing because they strive for more we are also going to bring on experts in every single field to teach you their own expertise so you're not only learning from me four days a week but I'm bringing other professionals in to teach you their principles too so if you love personal development and you constantly want to strive for more in life this is the podcast for you. Make sure you hit subscribe, send this to a friend that needs it, and keep listening to improve your life all around. And without any further ado, let's get into the Tailored Life Podcast. Today we have Dr. Grant Hensley, who is one of the leading researchers on time-restricted eating more commonly known as intermittent fasting for most people. But we discuss time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting, if there's a difference between the two. We discuss chrononutrition a little bit because that kind of falls into this category of nutrient timing research. Um, And we dive into all the different variables that are applicable and that are backed by research that he has discovered, whether that is autophagy, general health, hormones, performance in the gym, male versus female results from the intermittent fasting studies. And we really dive into a lot of stuff, especially inside the research specifically with resistance trained individuals because as we see there is a lot of research on intermittent fasting or fasting as a whole but it's not always with training individuals people who are actually in the gym trying to change their performance or body composition which is 90 percent, if not more of the audience listening to this podcast so Today, we get the researcher that is doing the most research on this topic in our population, which is super, super helpful and super practical. So I think you guys are really going to like this podcast. Um, Do me a huge favor. If you're not already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, whether you're on iTunes or you are on YouTube. Hit the notification button on YouTube so you can get notified whenever we drop an episode. Um, And check out the Clips channel. We do a YouTube Clips channel, so you can go to the YouTube Clips channel, Tailored Life Podcast Clips, and you can see snippets of every podcast that we break up into five to 10-minute sections. So you can kind of just get the gold nuggets or the knowledge bombs from the episode instead of listening to the entire thing every single time. So uh, without any further ado, let's talk all about time-restricted eating with Dr. Grant Tinsley. All right. So uh, before we dive into the specific topics, Grant, uh, can you give the listeners just your, you in a nutshell? Like I said, I'm going to do an intro, so I'm going to talk you up a bunch in that. But um, feel free to, to kind of boast and talk yourself up and talk about your accomplishments and who you are in the industry. It, it, I feel like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, I mean, I don't want this to sound like you blew up overnight kind of thing because it takes a long time to do what you do and be building up, but you just kind of got on my radar not too long ago. And I've just, I feel like once I found you and started kind of looking into some of your content, all of a sudden it was just like podcast, 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 podcast. You just kept getting interviewed and I was like, okay, so this guy's really starting to, to make some noise in the industry, which is exciting, um, especially given the topic that you're mainly interviewed on. But uh, fill us in with who you are uh, and what you've done in a nutshell. Yeah. So my name is Grant Tinsley. I'm an assistant professor here at Texas Tech University. So um, I've been here about four and a half years. Um, I conduct quite a bit of research related to uh, sports nutrition, body composition, intermittent fasting. So some topics we'll chat about today. Um, I'm a certified strength and conditioning specialist, uh, certified sports nutritionist, uh, do some things in that realm. Not a lot of like hands-on coaching these days because I mostly do 
do research. But um, yeah, in terms of like kind of coming on the scene, I think I had a little bit of a right place, right time uh, with the intermittent fasting research. So uh, when I got interested in that, it was early on in my PhD program. There, there really just wasn't research in resistance training populations um, on some of these contemporary intermittent fasting programs. So, you know, if there's nothing in an area and you do a study or two, you're all of a sudden, you know, the, the person who's done the research in that area. So, uh, yeah, I think some of those studies getting rolling over the last few years, um, you know, generate a lot of interest. And then, yeah, here over the last, I don't know, six months or so, I've been on a little bit of the, the podcast circuit. Uh, if I have to boast on myself, what I'll boast about is that last Friday, a couple of days ago, I found out I got tenured and promoted here at Texas Tech. So I'm, I'm pretty uh, thrilled about that. Um, that's Congrats, probably man. the top accomplishment I can give right now. So there's my intro. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, before, before you dove into intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding, uh, which I would love for us to kind of define what the differences are, um, were you... Uh, a proponent of it? Like, were you going into the research? Cause I always think it's funny. Like uh, Jackson Pias is a good example of this. I interviewed him. And of course we talked about diet breaks and he went into like getting into that research from a standpoint of like, I think these are really effective and I think I'm going to find something really good. And then he didn't find much of what he wanted. So it was kind of like the opposite. Were you kind of in that same place? Did you, were you like really for intermittent fasting or were you maybe not for it? Or were you just completely neutral going into the area of research? It probably, as much as I'd like to say as neutral, I'm sure that I probably wasn't completely neutral, but the background I came from was probably what a lot of people in the um, industry, you know, the background they came from, you know, a number of years ago, which was kind of being indoctrinated with this frequent small meals throughout the day. Um, I remember reading like as a teenager, I think a men's fitness article and is interviewing some, you know, really jack guy and getting all his tips and this and that. And, and it asked if you could give one tip that would like transform someone's physique, what would it be? And he said, set an alarm for the middle of the night, wake up in the middle of the night and eat spoonfuls of peanut butter as many as you can. And he's like, since I've done that, I've gained so much muscle. I'm so much more shredded, all this. And I remember thinking about like, huh, that's interesting. And even at the time, you know, not knowing anything at that point, I was like, that seems kind of weird. And like, is that worth the loss of sleep? And is that necessary? All this. Um, but anyways, I was coming in from this background of frequent small meals. And the thing that got me interested in this was my, my first doctoral advisor, Paula Bounty had uh, he was the first author for the International Society of Sports Nutrition's uh, big position stand on meal frequency. So they kind of dove into it from that context. And one of their major conclusions was these frequent small meals throughout the day that everyone um, sort of recommends. Because, I mean, I'm sure you know, for forever, it was like for fat loss, frequent small meals throughout the day. Muscle gain, frequent small meals throughout the day. Health, you know, whatever it was, the answer was frequent small meals throughout the day. So one of their conclusions was this wasn't really... Um, beneficial more than other meal frequencies in terms of metabolism, body composition, et cetera. So that's kind of the context where I came into the program. And, you know, through discussions with him, we kind of got interested in like, okay, if, you know, three meals a day is okay, or four meals a day is okay, and we don't need to do eight or nine meals a day, um, sort of how low could you go? Like, when would this be a problem? Um, and that's where we kind of got into our interest in sort of shrinking um, either the number of meals or just the period over which those are distributed. Uh, throughout the day. So honestly, going into it, I'm not, I, I didn't, uh, I wasn't like practicing intermittent fasting at that time. Didn't think like, oh, you know, I'm going to find data showing this is the best thing. It was really more curiosity. And I saw it kind of as an open uh, blue ocean, so to speak of research where there, there's not research in that area. And I really, you know, as a doc student, just really wanted to do a study in that area to get something out there. I love that. Yeah. I think, it, I mean, obviously it's always good to be neutral going into those situations, but it's been nice to see more of that research coming out in resistance trained individuals because 
when I remember when it was, I think it was the warrior diet first. And then I remember Jay Ferrugia came out with the renegade diet and then it was lean gains. And it was like, I mean, this is 10 plus years ago. So I remember doing it and being like, this is it. Like, this is the thing. And, yeah. and it's funny because we, I even remember hearing claims about it's going to increase growth hormone and all these things. And we, we just did research for you. Like I was telling you, me and Brandon, and one of the things they saw in this fasting study was that growth hormone decreased, IGF-1 decreased and in, in things like of that nature where uh, there was this one thing called anabolic fasting came out. And I always was like, that's so counterintuitive. That doesn't make sense. You're anabolic fasting. But point being, it's, it's been cool to see this. And, and there was that lean gain study that came out and things are coming out to show like, okay, well, this is a more realistic population. Like, let's study these people. Um, and before we get into your specific research on that, can you define... Um, in your own words, uh, it could be as short as you want or as long as you want, like intermittent fasting versus time-restricted feeding. And then even if you can throw chrononutrition in there, because I think they're all uh, uh, an area of studying nutrient timing in a sense, right? And they yeah. all kind of overlap. But I think there's been times where I say time-restricted feeding and people are kind of like, huh? And I'm like, oh, intermittent fasting. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I've heard about that. Yeah, yeah. No, so that, and, and I'll, I'll give the caveat up front that not everyone agrees on this. It's not like a contentious issue in literature, but if you look at, you know, even research labs that are very experienced in these areas, they'll define things a little bit differently. So um, I'll give you my view, which I think is, is in, informed by the research, but again, someone else could disagree. Um, so I view, view intermittent fasting as a very broad um, umbrella term. The, the various subtypes of intermittent fasting have a few things in common, which kind of justify their grouping together. Uh, one, in some way, they incorporate regularly occurring fasting periods that are longer than typical overnight fast. Uh, and of course, already on that that item, you have to stop and say, well, what's a typical overnight fast? Because there are some people that just typically would, you know, skip breakfast. Maybe they don't eat late in the evening and they're following something that looks like eight hour time restricted eating uh, without trying to. But there are data on this if you want to compare it to like the general population. Uh, here in the U.S., there's a good portion of the population that essentially more or less eats from the moment they wake up until the moment they go to bed. So uh, the median fasting time, I think, has been estimated at like nine hours or something like that in the in the U.S. population. So um, the, they have that in common, so a little bit longer fasting periods. Uh, as you mentioned, all these programs are focusing on when you eat, not what you eat inherently. And again, I think this is kind of contributes to their popularity because people who like to eat certain foods don't like to be told not to eat those foods. Uh, we want to eat the foods we like. So I think a lot of people can get on board with the idea of changing when they eat more easily than what they eat. Um, that's a little bit my opinion, but I think that's part of the reason why this has uh, remained fairly popular for a while now. Um, so those are just a couple of common factors within intermittent fasting. I would view the three main subtypes as time-restricted eating, alternate day fasting, and periodic fasting. So time-restricted eating, I'd say, is the most popular um, variant. And often, I feel like in the general population, if you say intermittent fasting, someone's picturing something like eating all your calories in a certain number of hours each day, which is our definition for time-restricted eating. Um, there's not an exact hour range. I would say it could go as short as like a one hour eating period each day. That'd be the most extreme variant, which would essentially be OMAD or one meal a day. Um, it could go up to, you know, for some people, even as strange as it sounds, eating in a 10 or 12 hour period of time each day is time-restricted eating. So again, if you have someone who normally is eating constantly say they're eating over a 16 hour period of time like all their non-waking hours um, for some people going down to just eating all their calories in a 12 hour period say 8 a.m to 8 p.m for some people that is time restricted eating they're restricting it relative to what they would uh, normally do um, i'll just briefly define the, the other two forms we may not talk about them as much today but 
alternate day fasting, the term kind of tells you what it is uh, in its purest form. It's eating every other day, every other calendar day, which is uh, pretty challenging. So like eating Monday, not eating Tuesday, eating Wednesday. Um, some early studies with that showed it was pretty difficult and they also showed some lean mass loss. So for the last 10 years or so, most of the studies have actually used what's called modified alternate day fasting, where there's a small meal, often about 500 calories or 25% of energy intake um, that's allowed on those so-called fasting days. So it's really kind of a modified fasting day um, where you just have one low calorie meal. And then um, you do have two decently long fasting windows kind of on either side of that meal. And then lastly, periodic fasting is um, a little bit of a broad term, even though it is kind of one of these subtypes. This encompasses a number of specific protocols, but generally these are often a little bit longer fasts. So up to 24 hours or longer in duration, um, often they'll occur less frequently. So this could be, you know, like one 24 plus hour fast per month or every couple of weeks, uh, or it could be something as frequent as a couple 24 hour fasts a week. Uh, and when we say 24 hour fast, sometimes people are thinking what I mentioned with alternate day fasting where, oh, I'm not eating on Tuesday. But really, this is typically implemented as, say, not eating after dinner on Tuesday, and then you'll eat dinner on Wednesday. So you've had a 24-hour period of time, but not an actual calendar day where you're not eating. Um, so that's broadly intermittent fasting, three subtypes, which would include time-restricted eating. Chrononutrition really is a fascinating area. It probably ties most clearly to time-restricted eating, mm -hmm. though I'd say each form of intermittent fasting can apply in some ways, but big picture, we're just concerned with how um, nutrition interacts with the natural circadian rhythms in our body. So just the natural rhythms of when certain processes in our body are more or less active. Um, so it's kind of a line of research looking at things like if you ate the exact same meal in the morning versus nighttime, are there relevant differences in how your body would process it? So it's kind of that whole line of thinking. And you can see how that relate to time-restricted eating if you're um, say cutting off eating before a certain time of night, uh, or conversely not eating until late in the day and eating most of your calories at night, kind of discussions of how does that interact with your metabolism? Is this beneficial? Is this not beneficial? Yeah, I think, uh, and you correct me if I'm wrong. I, I mean, the easiest way for me to explain it to people is it's almost time restricted eating, but the opposite of the most popular way of doing it. Most people think I'm going <laughs> to skip breakfast and eat all my calories in the afternoon, which from an adherence perspective, if you have a social life is actually pretty, pretty good. Cause that's easy to maintain, yeah. easy to do. Um, but it's kind of taken that opposite approach of like, wake up and have a bigger breakfast and then stop eating so late. And, and, but you're still doing a time restricted eating. And I was actually, I had Danny Lennon on right when they, he started oh, really awesome. talking about that stuff. And I was actually pretty shocked at the results they were saying and how, because for so long it was like nutrient timing doesn't matter just hit your calories, you know? So I think the work he did on that and the work you're doing with uh, time restricted eating is, is really showing us that like, well, maybe there's more to the picture than just saying it's just about calories. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And you know, it's, there's so much individual variability on like when people would normally eat. So if you take, for example, like you're saying the most, most say popular implementation, which would be not eating breakfast, say eating from, we'll just say noon to 8 PM, like the 16, eight lean gain style. Mm -hmm. Um, you're right that, that you're not, you're not eating first thing in the morning. Um, you're not eating in that whole morning period where your body is, um, typically a little bit better at processing nutrients, um, if, as if, um, or sorry, as compared to the nighttime. Uh, however, if you think about cutting off at 8 PM, it's not early, but it's not super late. So you're also cutting out a period of time where we might see like the worst metabolic processing of nutrients, which would be from 8 PM onwards. So 
some analyses have looked at this would quantify sort of nighttime eating as 8 p.m. until I think 4 a.m. like the next morning. So like through the true night period. And, and this has relevance for, you know, like shift workers or people who just eat um, a lot at night. So kind of that normal implementation is interesting because in one sense, like cutting off at eight for some people, you cut off that late night eating where you may not process the food as well. And in my opinion, the behavioral aspect is really important too. Um, if I resort to anecdote for a minute, I know the time of day I want the things that I need the least definitely after 8 PM, mm -hmm. the time of day I want to eat excessive quantities the most definitely after 8 PM. So I think something about that rule structure for some people behaviorally is very helpful, even beyond the physiology saying like, you know, by 8 PM, many people may have hit their, their calorie targets, hit their micronutrient and protein targets and the things they're eating are not, not necessarily the things are going to help them there. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a double edged sword. Again, interesting. You're right. You're cutting off that morning time. Um, but for some people, you're also cutting off that particularly late night eating. What, uh, from a physiological perspective, like what are the mechanisms causing that window after 8 PM to be so bad from a, cause for a long time it was like the whole don't eat carbs at night thing, which they never really talk yeah. about a time, you know, we all say, Oh, don't worry about it. It's not that big a deal. Um, yeah. it's just so fascinating to me because for so long, it was just so a hundred percent sure meal time. It doesn't matter how many times you eat. doesn't matter when you eat. doesn't matter. It's like daily and weekly caloric intake is all that matters. Um, and there's a lot of stuff coming out now that it's like, well, maybe that's not the case. So I'm just curious about that mechanism. Like, why is that a bad time for people to eat? Yeah. And I'll, I'll clarify one thing, just the one analysis I looked at, they sort of arbitrarily cut set 8 PM is the, the cutoff time just to split stuff up in their analysis from daytime to nighttime. So I don't want it to come across to any listener as me saying, you're like 8 PM is magical and 759, your body's great. <laughs> 801, you're not going to process this food well. So just uh, to clarify on that, cause that, that could be a, you know, a misquote floating around there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So big picture, lots of it just relates to in sort of where the evidence has come from. Um, would largely be looking at postprandial responses. So post eating responses in the blood, looking at how effectively glucose is handled, um, what type of insulin response you see and the blood lipid response you see. So some of the studies, and I know, um, you know, Danny uh, Lennon has great knowledge in this area and has chatted about these studies uh, on several podcasts, but there, again, there's some really interesting studies looking at giving the exact same meal to a group of participants, um, say during the day or earlier in the morning versus later in the evening and later in the evening, the postprandial responses that you're seeing with glucose, lipids, insulin are, are not as favorable or as indicative of the body not being um, necessarily primed to process those nutrients at that time. Uh, so this yeah, is where the, the chrononutrition and kind of circadian biology comes in. And, um, you know, it's a very complex area, but we essentially have a, a clock in our brain and also clocks out in our other tissues um, that cause certain proteins to be expressed at certain times of the day in sort of predictable patterns. And that's kind of what we're talking about lining up. So if, if the, um, if those patterns are lined up with when you eat, that's when you can process the nutrients a little more effectively. And, and we're not saying here that like, if you eat a meal at night, your body can't digest it or can't absorb it or, you know, like something crazy like that, the body, um, the body can, but you're right that it's not, um, even if say like weekly calories and macros are, are a critical component. Um, there are effects of how those calories are distributed during the day. And it also goes beyond just fasting and feeding. So there've been other studies where say the overall meal frequency and the total time of eating each day is the same, but just the distribution of calories is different. So for example, larger breakfast, medium lunch, small dinner versus the opposite pattern. Um, and you see a, a similar theme that shifting more the calorie intake earlier in the day generally seems to be beneficial in terms of how, it, how 
effectively the body can handle the meal. One of the things that uh, I read and listened to Danny talk about too with that was um, almost as if your body would maintain a higher caloric intake with this approach, which would make sense. I mean, if you have more food in the morning, you're probably gonna have more energy throughout the day. So neat probably goes up was my guess. But um, I'm curious with your research that you've done and probably all the research you've looked into, because I'm assuming you've probably dug into all there is about uh, time-restricted eating at this point. Did you see differences uh, from a caloric expenditure perspective of people fasting versus non-fasting or fasting by stopping eating at 6 p.m. versus starting eating at 2 p.m., um, like a lean gains approach? Yeah. So we, in our studies, the ones where we've monitored kind of reliving physical activity with accelerometry, we haven't seen those differences, but there are some studies that are um, more controlled and targeted at that specific outcome that have shown some differences, like when someone would skip breakfast, for example, having lower um, yeah, neat, uh, non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, or, you know, fidgeting, moving, doing all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are some data supporting that that's lower. Um, if you haven't eaten yet in a day, it's not a hundred percent clear cut. And I haven't seen great data in, um, the populations you and I might be most interested in with, uh, exercising physically active populations. I also think the awareness in that area is helpful. Like as on a practical point, if someone was implementing, these programs and they know, okay, in many individuals, spontaneous physical activity might be lower in the morning. If they haven't eaten breakfast, this might be a time of day I target for some low intensity activity. Like I'm going to be, be intentional about going for a walk, doing this moving, like I'm aware of this now and I'm, I'm going to try to target that. So, um, but yeah, in our studies in particular, we have done a few with accelerometry and, and we haven't seen that, um, come up when we're comparing, say a control group that is required to eat breakfast and eat throughout the whole day, um, versus a group that can't eat till noon. Um, but again, we, it wasn't like a primary outcome. So even though we collected all that information there, there are ways you could design the studies to be more targeted at that exact question. Would that mean that, um, I'm just, just so people, cause I always want to like clarify this kind of stuff for people, the significance of these results. Cause sometimes people will see a result in a study and I think they put more value into it than they probably should. Um, sometimes it's not the case, but the only reason I bring that up is because, uh, the difference between looking for that and in your case, not really worrying about that outcome too much. Does that mean like, is there still the capability of that being a significant difference or is it like, because we didn't really notice it, it's probably, even though they saw it more, it's not that significant. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's possible. It's possible. It's definitely possible because it'll be relevant. So the way we primarily looked at physical activity was, um, over longer periods of time. So like days. So like when we looked at this over days, it didn't amount to, um, an appreciable difference. The more highly controlled studies have looked sort of the time course over a day. So they're looking at like a couple hours in the morning when one group's had breakfast and one hasn't, and they see lower activity there. Um, and then maybe comparing later in the day, but ours was on a longer scale. So this was like an eight week intervention. And we looked at like multi-week periods of time. So it is possible that, um, the, the resolution, so to speak, wasn't high enough to see uh, differences, say like within a day or the distribution of activity in a day, say they were less active in the morning, but, um, you know, by the end of the day, there was so much noise in the physical activity measurements that that wasn't evident. So I do think it's, you know, as a sort of at the practice level, it'd be something to be aware of and not just to discount and say like, oh, well, a study in active individuals didn't show anything here. Um, because yeah, some studies specifically looking at this have, have seen that outcome. Uh, yeah. So no, yeah, that's a good question. I, I just, I don't know. I've never actually thought about that. And and when I talked to Danny, I was, I was pretty sold on it. I was like, God, that makes a lot of sense. But then 
talking to you now, I'm starting to think like, well, okay, well, if you're not noticing it on a daily weekly level, does it kind of wash out by the end of the week? You know, like it all, it all ends up being about the same by the time you get back to eating patterns and everything. Um, but that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I would, I probably should ask you this four questions ago, but I just kind of <laughs> started taking it a different direction. What were you looking for? Like explain your specific research just so we can like have that. And then we can kind of pick apart your, your research instead of everybody else's. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I either directly or in collaboration with other labs have been involved in uh, four studies of time-restricted eating plus resistance training. Uh, there's been a lot of overlap in outcome variables. So the primary outcome variables we've looked at have been um, body composition and muscular performance on pretty standard resistance exercises. So things like one repetition maximums, repetitions to failure. And uh, we have employed some more advanced performance metrics as well, but big picture body composition and performance. Um, just kind of as an overview, three of the four studies have been conducted in males. One of the four is conducted in females. We've had kind of a spectrum of training statuses from recreationally active up to um, highly trained with many years of experience and in body comp that would indicate, uh, you know, someone that has a large amount of lean mass and relatively low body fat. Um, three of the four studies have used um, essentially like the common 16-8, so 16 hours of fasting, eight hours of feeding. Um, one, we had a little bit different protocol. The first one um, that I did as a PhD student at Baylor, we had a shorter feeding window um, on the rest days. So only a four hour eating window, but then on the exercise days, we allowed individuals to consume food all day. And our, our purpose of that was essentially to have, um, plenty of pre and post exercise nutrition and kind of, um, sort of like calorie cycling, really just having those low calorie days on the, the rest days. So, um, big picture, do you want, well, actually I should, I should ask before I start running through it. Do you want me to kind of just go big picture overview of the results we've, we've found? Yeah. Yeah, please. Okay. So we have generally found that, um, fat-free mass or lean mass, if you want to call it that can, um, at least be maintained with these programs. We did see in our most recent study, um, in females here at Texas tech, an actual, um, increase in fat-free mass, increase in muscle thickness. Uh, this was in the context of the final eating period ended up being about seven and a half hours a day. Um, they had relatively high protein intake or, you know, the, what we were targeting for, which is 1.6 grams per kilogram. They were eating right around weight maintenance calories. So virtually no change in body mass, um, but a decrease in fat mass increase in fat-free mass. Uh, the control group in this study ate over about 12 to 13 hours a day. So there's decent difference, 12 to 13 hours versus about seven and a half hours um, but no differences between groups. So similar increases in fat-free mass and muscle thickness and muscular performance. Um, so we looked at maximal strength of the upper and lower body repetitions to failure. Um, we have a nice mechanical squat device. We can look at rate of force development. We can look at eccentric and concentric force during the squat movement, looked at all these variables and essentially everyone improved over the course of this eight week supervised resistance training program. Um, and there was not, uh, not a difference between um, groups for any of those performance outcomes or for the, the fat-free mass outcomes. Uh, in the other studies, we the one study where there's a potential detriment um, of time-restricted eating was the one with that little bit longer fasting period of 20 hours. And that was very much a free living study. So we didn't require, we didn't provide protein supplements like we did in other studies. And we didn't require certain protein intake. This was sort of just strictly, you're following this timing schedule and let's see what happens. Um, so the individuals following that a little bit more aggressive time-restricted eating, at least on those four days a week, sort of self-selected a, a protein intake that was not much above the RDA, so lower than the control group and lower than we'd want. 
Um, and they didn't lose lean mass, but the, the control group in that study gained um, a little bit of lean mass in, with virtually no change in time-restricted eating. So when protein's high enough, lean mass can at least be maintained. It can be increased. Um, the, the study in females, we saw the increase in fat-free mass. They were resistance trained. Um, they were not quite as trained as the study that I worked on with, with Antonio Paoli over in Italy. That one was Moro and colleagues, 2016. Uh, those individuals were probably the most highly trained that we've had in any study. Uh, many of them identified as natural bodybuilders. So I think their average BMI was 27 or 28 with 13% body fat on DEXA on average. So, you know, a combination of overweight BMI and, and low body fat telling you they're, you know, relatively muscular. So those individuals, as we'd sort of expect in that more highly trained population, we didn't see an increase in lean mass, but we did see maintenance um, of lean mass along with, with fat loss over an eight week program. So um, big picture, if I were to summarize all those, I would say that Intermittent fasting, at least in the form of time-restricted eating and down to about a seven and a half hour um, eating period each day, uh, if you have sufficient protein uh, and if you're eating, say, near weight maintenance calories, uh, can certainly support um, lean mass maintenance uh, or even an increase depending on the, the training status. Um, we didn't, though, see like definitive unique benefits. There were some interesting physiological benefits in one of the studies um, however, those individuals lost a little bit of weight compared to a control group that didn't lose weight. So it's a little hard to tease that out from, from weight loss in and of itself. So big picture, I'd say for most exercising individuals, um, a viable strategy at that intensity of about, you know, seven and a half, eight hours a day. Uh, if you go short than that, it's possible you could get into issues with, you know, getting all your nutrients in. If you went really short, maybe issues getting all your micronutrients in, um, even kind of other, other peripheral issues beyond just like the body weight, body composition, things we'd look at. Um, so that's, that's kind of my, a little bit rambling summary of our studies, but feel free to let me know if you want me to dive into any more aspects in detail. Yeah, no, I think that's perfect. I mean, and you can, you can tell me if you think it's more than this, but it kind of shows me, uh, and I kind of already had this intuitive thought It's it's mainly an adherence tool. You know, if, if it's kind of a, it's a nice safety blanket for those who think that they can adhere that way. Cause it's like, Hey, well, you're not going to lose muscle. You know, you're going to get the result. And if that's easier for you, then go with it. You know, it makes the most sense, but, um, it's not a magic bullet to get shredded or anything like that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, yeah, I would, I would also endorse that perspective. Definitely where it's at here. Um, some of the, you know, interesting research areas with possible unique health benefits have been in really specific populations, um, who aren't quite as healthy and with very specific implementations. So yeah, I would definitely, I'd say there's still more research to be done, but as of now, I yeah, definitely agree with that assessment. Do you think that some of these research studies for, for these unique populations that we do see these physiological or, or just health changes in general, maybe not we're not after body comp or performance, when they do this, because I know this is the case with some studies where they, they use this protocol and it alludes to all these different health benefits, but really the, the, the group also lost 30 pounds because they ended up being in a caloric deficit. And could we just tie those health benefits to losing body fat and not being in that obese range? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. And that's very much a hot area here. So I know of at least three studies I can think of that have actually shown select benefits of, um, various implementations of intermittent fasting when, um, either there's no weight loss, both in the control condition and the intermittent fasting condition, or when the weight loss is matched in both conditions. So I'd say there are at least three showing possible unique benefits. Um, when those major players are accounted for. And again, specific implementation. So two of these three used what's called early time-restricted eating. So like you were mentioning earlier, 
kind of the, the most common implementation of time-restricted eating isn't maybe 100% optimal if we're looking at it from a chronobiology perspective because you're, you're skipping breakfast, eating midday into the mid-evening. So early time-restricted eating has that same truncated eating window of, say, often eight hours, but it's shifted up. So you do eat breakfast, but what that means is your last meal of the day is at 2 or 3 p.m., which, um, you know, like you mentioned earlier, with the social aspects, for, for many people, I think that would be difficult for long-term adherence. But two of the three studies uh, showing these unique benefits use this implementation, early time-restricted eating. Um, one was in pre-diabetics, and they showed some benefits essentially for glucose handling, insulin sensitivity, um, kind of those outcomes. So, so relevant to that population, um, but we wouldn't want to infer too much to our, our healthy, um, active population. Uh, one of the studies was in alternate day fasting, uh, the modified alternate day fasting, where you have that one small meal every other day. Uh, and similarly, they saw some benefits related to insulin concentrations and insulin sensitivity. So I guess from the greater good big picture uh, perspective of lots of our population would, would benefit from weight loss and fat loss and um, improvement in health variables. Uh, there's some promise here on that last item, the improvement of health variables, even independent of um, weight loss and fat loss. Uh, but again, translating to kind of active, healthy populations, we probably shouldn't overinterpret these yet. But um, from the big picture perspective, there are some interesting tidbits out there. Yeah. And I think that's good to clarify because that's the majority of our population is they're 100 percent of the people that listen to this podcast lift, you know, and, and yeah. most of them are coaches and stuff like that. Um, I, were you guys during your studies, were you guys looking at any blood work or anything like that to, to notice any? I mean, I would be curious if any metabolic hormonal general health changes just because that's always been the thing that not necessarily like rub me wrong I don't get too worked up about stuff but I just see there's a lot of marketing behind things like intermittent fasting I think pointing in the wrong direction like stuff you guys are doing is great because it's more along the lines of can we use this as a tool and still maintain performance muscle lifestyle stuff like that not can we use this as a way to increase testosterone or boost IGF-1 or do all these things that people market and talk about um mainly a lot of that stuff's talked about before enough research is done to prove it wrong because they usually yeah. have like as you know it takes a while to do studies so they have a, a a period of time where they can mark it away um but what are your thoughts on all that do you have you seen anything that would improve any of those kind of markers or anything like that yeah so we we have looked at some kind of health and physiological variables largely sort of fairly you know standard blood lipids um blood pressure things like that in general, you know, if you're starting with a healthy population with these items in normal ranges, you don't expect to see too much. And that's generally what we've seen with one exception. So the one study that was in the, the most highly trained individuals, the, um, the one over in Italy, um, there were some improvements in inflammatory markers and blood lipids uh, with the time-restricted eating group and not with the control group. Um, again, the challenge is, even though they were prescribed calorie um, equivalent diets, really whenever we're in a free living setting. So anything outside of essentially keeping people in cages, which would be like a metabolic ward study, they're, they're in their rooms, you're weighing out every gram of everything they eat. Um, anything outside of that, which is almost all of the research in, in this field, um, you can't be 100% sure, even if the diet records showed there wasn't a difference in calorie intake between groups, you can't be 100% sure without watching them recording everything they're doing. So there was that just a little bit of weight loss and fat loss in the time-restricted eating group. So it's possible the health improvements are strictly related to that. Um, again, the, the, the accessibility of the studies we'd really want to do um, is just not there. It'd be astronomically expensive. Um, and I don't know if a metabolic board would even let you do it. If you're like, okay, we have a bunch of like 
jacked healthy lifters and we want to see if we can get them even more jacked and healthy and we want a you know million dollar grant to be able to lock them in cages and really nail down this intermittent fasting thing um, unfortunately, I don't know if we'll ever have that research like in, in the lifting population. So all that to say, we've seen select health improvements, nothing overwhelming and sort of as expected, we don't see the magnitude of health improvements you see when you take, um, you know, sedentary, relatively unhealthy people um, with a lot of excess weight and put them on one of these programs where in, in those cases, you see all these variables improving and generally similarly between normal calorie restriction methods and intermittent fasting methods. Um, we haven't looked at some of the items you mentioned that are kind of hot items in uh, intermittent fasting, whether that's related to autophagy or, um, you know, some of those select anabolic hormone concentrations. Uh, we haven't done much in that area yet. I think it's hard to do too. I know that uh, with the autophagy that I don't even think they have any data on humans with that. Do they? It's mostly animals and there's a little bit in humans, but not, not okay. definitely not a nail in the coffin study, just kind of some preliminary little pieces of evidence here and there. Uh, but people have used that and ran with it and <laughs> have been yeah. saying a lot with it. So it's funny. Um, okay, cool. So one question I had with talking about this, just this idea of maintenance and, and potentially improving performance, I'm sure like if, if, you know, now that you know, you can maintain somebody's performance and strength and muscle using a time restricted eating protocol, you probably can tweak it to way to improve those things as well. But, uh, timing of training and like performance detriments. I would be really curious of that. Like in general, did you see any decline um, with that? Um, my guess would be if somebody's training in the morning for sure, but I might be wrong if, if calories were equated um, in the evening, I, probably not because if you can get one or two meals in, at least you might not see anything, but I'm just curious if you guys looked into that and, and what you found. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good point. All four of the studies we've conducted have um, required the training to be in the fed state. So it's generally in the afternoon or evening. Um, so for, in most of these cases, it's sort of like right in the middle of the eating window. So in that sense, we're still adhering to sort of best practices for sports nutrition that they've had, um, pre-exercise calorie intake, nutrient intake, as well as post-exercise. So we haven't really pushed into exercise in the fasted window. Um, I know one study was conduct is being conducted to look at that. I think it ran into some issues with um, COVID shutting down a lot of universities, unfortunately, but, um, Dr. Andy Galpin was conducting a study looking at this. And I believe they had separate groups exercising either in the fed window or the, the fasted window. Um, there are some, just a few acute studies that are sort of relevant there. So we know if, if people typically consume breakfast and they skip breakfast and exercise in the morning, um, even with resistance training, uh, or resistance exercise, they, they can see compromised performance. I'm a little bit skeptical whether that translate into people who typically skip breakfast. And I'm sure there are many people who, you know, if you're working out first thing in the morning, super early, um, some people can't stomach like eating something uh, and immediately going to work out particularly early in the morning. So my guess would be there are some people who would be, you know, somewhat habituated to working out um, fasted in general, it's uh, fasted training, uh, not tons of data on it, but the shorter term, um, well, I say not tons of data, not tons of data, I would say in the resistance exercise training, um, programs that are similar to ones that, um, that we might implement, uh, in general though, longer duration, kind of aerobic style events, some, um, sport performance, kind of long duration, um, activities can be compromised by training fasted. The shorter the duration, the less clear the detriments are. Uh, and some of this comes from sort of related research areas. Um, so for example, Ramadan intermittent fasting, which, uh, it is related, but there's so many other factors, including dehydration, differences in actual lengths of fasts, variety of other implementation 
um, differences that it, it's hard to overinterpret it or you don't want to overinterpret it too much. Um, but big picture, we haven't seen that because we've had everyone train in the Fed state. Um, it's certainly possible you could see detriments, though, again, I think my opinion is that this might end up being, um, in terms of performance especially, somewhat personal preference and what you're used to. Um, but I don't know if you have thoughts on that from the, the practical perspective, working with a lot of co- uh, clients and coaches. Yeah, um, it's funny. You, like now, I didn't I didn't realize he was, but I actually am interviewing uh, Andy tomorrow, Andy Galpin. So I'm going to oh, awesome. I'm going to bring that up. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, in my experience, I kind of looked at it in two ways. I think that, you know, in mass, uh, the guys over at mass, I don't remember who did it, but one of them reviewed a research of like timing of your training, just period, like what time of day is the best time. And it kind of, they, they kind of resulted in saying like, it doesn't really matter as long as you get used to it. So for me right now, I would train at three. So that's the best time. If I went to eight, it would be the worst time until I got used to the worst time after a couple weeks. And then it would be normal for me, you know? So you kind yeah. of adjust to it. My guess would it be, it would be kind of simple. The first time I do uh, a faster workout, I'd probably feel like shit. And eventually I'd probably get better at it. Um, the only thing that I could see being a big issue is if somebody was following a diet and when you're in a deficit, your training performance is going to slowly decrease anyway, especially if you're dropping carbs throughout the process. So maybe if, if you were on a low carb and intermittent fasting, that might not be the best idea. But if you're loading up on carbs in the afternoon and you wake up with full muscle glycogen, which I believe it's like 24 hours just to even replenish, right? Like, um, or something like that. I I think you'd probably be fine. Um, but I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah, no. So I think, and it'd be interesting to see on the the body comp side, I I'm, I'm with you on the performance side and uh, yeah, I think what you get used to, you can you know, you can perform at the time you're used to performing. It would be interesting though, even if performance is maintained, if there were um, body comp differences. And again, we haven't, you know, gone into that area yet, though, hopefully with, you know, Andy's study and uh, others in the future, it'd be, it'd be yeah, pretty interesting to see if there was a, a body comp difference. Um, generally kind of the normal guideline I'd say, and I think lots of people in the sports nutrition community would say is if you do exercise fasted, like say you need to have necessity, you're working out at 5 a.m. and it's like, I'm not going to get up at 3 a.m. to time have a pre-workout meal, you know, like two hours before it's like, you could work out fasted, but then don't stay fasted. Be sure you're ingesting nutrients, you know, try and promote a positive muscle protein balance, all of this, but, um, it, it would be interesting. I know some like very strong advocates of fasting talk about exercising fasted and remaining fasted because of molecular signaling events and such. But, um, I generally like steer away from that and don't, don't recommend that for people. So it'd be interesting if we get some data on, you know, truly fasted training, um, like fasted pre staying fasted post for several hours and uh, how detrimental that would be if, if at all to, to adaptations. Yeah. The bro and me won't allow myself to not have some protein <laughs> yep. if I'm in yep. that state. That's fair. But I think, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it'd be interesting to see that. Cause I think in my experience, usually if people are training fasted, it is because they're training at like five in the morning. It's very rarely like, well, I wake up at five and then I fast until 10 and then I finally train. And it's like, yeah. we've had five hours to eat. So usually it's like, let's just have a meal anyway. Um, but no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think I think we're on the same page with that. Have you seen any differences with male versus females within these? Because I know you did one, you said two on uh, men and, and one on women. Um, and I'm always interested in the difference because it's it seems like it's more prevalent now. But for a while, it seemed like every study about muscle strength, anything was just always about on men. It was very rarely yeah. women. Um, I'd say 70% of the clients my coaches work with are women. So it was always nice when a female study came out. But yeah. um, did you see any differences between... The genders when you went through these studies yes big picture we didn't uh the caveat is we like one study was completely 
um, resistance trained females to others were exclusively males. So we, even though we had similar protocols, they weren't in the, the identical study. Mm. Um, but we didn't see anything inconsistent with, with the other studies. We didn't see, um, anything to make us think this is uh, more beneficial or more detrimental. Uh, you often see that floating around the idea that it's like, oh, intermittent fasting is okay, but not for women. Um, best I can tell this sort of trace traces back to one of the early alternate day fasting studies, um, with true alternate day fasting. So they're having 36 hour fasts and there were some like very select, um, health markers that were impaired, uh, worsened essentially in females, but not in males. Mm. So best I can tell from these fairly select, I think is related to, um, insulin sensitivity or glucose handling. Um, but again, pretty select markers and select studies showing a potential detriment there again, with, with fasts that are twice as long, um, as the most common implementations of time-restricted eating. So it doesn't directly translate for sure, but, um, but yeah, you commonly see it sort of, um, or I do at least recommended more heavily for men and saying, you know, women should be cautious. And I, to be fair, I think there might be some legitimate reasons for that. I think, um, I haven't seen like great data on the effects at an equivalent, say at equivalent calorie deficit, if there could be any. Um, you know, more detrimental effects on menstrual function or something like that with, with these fasting periods in combination with a calorie deficit. Um, so I think it's fair to um, wonder about that, but we haven't seen anything um, clearly detrimental. In our study, it was, I think it was about a third of participants did not have regularly occurring menstrual cycles because we, we did have a resistance strain population and they were, um, you know, fairly active, some of them very highly active. So um, you know, even though we, we try to record a phase of the menstrual cycle and all that, it, it's hard because some individuals, um, a good portion of our participants didn't have regularly occurring cycles, which is, you know, not uncommon among, um, active, active women. So anyways, from what I've seen, um, I haven't seen anything clearly saying it's, it's more or less beneficial. Um, I'd say it's still an important area to, to research, um, again, particularly in regards to like, if this induced menstrual dysfunction at, um, less of a calorie deficit than a traditional method where calories are spread out throughout the day, that, that would be noteworthy and maybe a reason to avoid it in certain populations. But, um, as of now, we just don't really have those data. I'll be, I'll admit that I've, I've often said that I don't always recommend it, but I've, I've followed that up with, I don't have research to say that that's for sure. So there has been times yeah. where it just made sense for the individual to do it because for adherence purposes, um, I just personally experienced working with hundreds of people over the last decade. I've just haven't seen as positive of results with women as I have with men. And I, I've never really had a good explanation to that. Um, I've thought maybe, uh, female hormones, uh, and physiology, just their body is just a little more sensitive to nutrients or whatever it may be, or stress, but I've just, I've typically, it could even be a, just adherence things, right. And cravings and things like that. But I have seen better results with men. And I typically, I don't, I'm not a big proponent for my clients using it unless they ask and want to. Um, yeah. But I have seen that and I've heard it many times and I've heard it said pretty confidently, which is where I kind of steer differently. I'm like, well, I don't know, but I haven't had great experiences, so I can't argue it. Yeah. And I mean, that's valuable insight. And often some of these things, you know, we have sort of data from the field, so to speak, before we have the, the concrete mechanism. And it's very much within the realm of possibility that there are legitimate physiological reasons, um, you know, why it may not be as beneficial for women. Um, in our studies, in, both in males and females, but in the, in the study with females, kind of just informal exit interviews, I'll have to talk to people and say, so it's like, you know, so you've done this for eight weeks now. Like, what do you think? Um, there are some who said like, well, because it gave me the results I wanted, I'm going to continue with it. There are some that said like, you know, it was hard for the first few weeks, but now I really like it. I'm going to stick with it. 
others that said like, this is the worst. I mean, eat breakfast, like the second I wake up for the rest of my life and I never <laughs> want to fast again. So, you know, it's, you know, as you know, kind of all over the place in terms of people's subjective experience with it and, and how they um, adapt to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I have one more question on this topic and then I want to kind of shift gears a little bit. Um, and it's, it's more about just like kind of looking over all this, mainly your, the research studies that you were a part of, uh, what were the populations like? I'm always curious about this because, um, I, I, I'm trying to, especially now that Brandon's on the team, I'm always staying up to date with what's coming out and everything. And there's, I always want to know who is actually like who they recruited because, is this person relevant to my 35 year old stressed out mom who's doing CrossFit five times a week and wants to lose weight? And, you know, and it's yeah. like sometimes hundred percent it does. And other times I'm like, well, not as much because the stress levels in age are just so different. Right. Um, even this is one of the things with the whole diet break being only psychological was hard for me to fully grasp too. Cause I was like, I feel like there's something with stress and physiology going on that's improving when my clients use more of a methodical approach and a periodized approach with diet breaks and maintenance phases because they're not the stress-free college athlete that are in some of these studies, you know, but, um, and I'm not saying that's who was in your study. I have no idea who was, but that, but that's why I'm asking. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So I'd say three of the four largely recruited students, I would say if I had to estimate it'd be over three quarters of the sample if not more we're sort of like traditional undergraduate students um in any study here so for example in our study in, in resistance trained females we, we had the spectrum from carefree um freshmen to like last year of law school like the most stressed out person i've ever seen so like we, we have the we have the full spectrum there um so we'll say there's some people even if they're in the young like student type category who you know have very very different stress levels um, the one in Italy, I believe had a little bit higher average age and I have less like details. There was recruitment through several gyms in this particular region of Italy. And since I wasn't, you know, like boots on the ground there for that one, I have a little bit less information or a little bit of a less subjective feel for the, um, participants other than the fact that many of them self-identified as, as natural bodybuilders. So yeah, that's a fair point in, in general, um, relatively young, relatively healthy, active individuals. Um, there aren't many... I can think of maybe one or two studies implementing, well, actually there are none that have implemented a good resistance training program in uh, kind of a population to be more relevant to some of the clients you just mentioned, say like um, later phases of young adult into to middle age and just kind of a different um, life stage. So yeah, most of ours, and to be honest, like some of it is because of convenience, like we are recruiting participants for these studies. Um, you know, it's hard sometimes to get out fully into the community and get people who are able to come into campus three times a week for our trainers to supervise them in the middle of the day for a workout and, and all this. So, no, I think that's always, um, yeah, definitely a, a fair, fair question. It's a, it's always something I, I, I think of, and I, and I don't mean to put that as like a critique because well, yeah, number one, I'm not the one doing the research. <laughs> and now that I know Brandon so well, I understand what really goes into it. Um, and I also know that like I would say it's about 50% of the clientele that a lot of my coaches work with, let's say, but not a single one of them would give researchers the time of day to, to, to do this, you know? So it's by no means a critique. I understand it's almost impossible to sometimes work with those people. Um, but I was just more so curious if you thought it was even like a fair thing to consider in in your head as a coach for people listening for myself or for coaches in general. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's a, it's an important caveat. I think, you know, there'd be some, well, you know what, I'll stop myself from going down that tangent. I just say, yeah, it is an important consideration. I wouldn't say it would overwhelm everything else. And 
um, you know, I'd still defer to, to like you were, like if you had something that came to you that, that wanted to do this eating salary, like that we, I think this would agree with my schedule very well, or um, something that we've advocated for in a few papers is the idea of test fasts. So we've done some studies of acute fasting, like say up to 24 hours, and then looking at how much people compensate in the evening after 24 hour fasts, like how much they eat, how much they overeat. Um, and there's huge variability among individuals and sometimes even within an individual between days. So in some of these studies do sort of uh, our write-ups, we've advocated for the idea of test fasting periods and, you know, just very closely monitoring your own subjective responses over the course of a couple fasting periods, rather than diving into like, I'm going to do an eight week intermittent fasting program, doing a few test fasts, being really aware of like, what types of food am I craving? Like, how am I subjectively? How is my irritability? How's my hunger? All these things. And um, you know, I, th I think there's definitely relevant variation there where um, for some people it just wouldn't, wouldn't be a wise overall lifestyle choice. And for, for others, they are unfazed or for some reason even, uh, you know, enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a good way to kind of round that up. And, and I want to respect your time. So I want to get in a couple of quick topics before okay. we close out. Um, the first one being the caffeine study that you were talking about, the caffeine versus non-caffeine that we were going back and forth with email. Um, yeah. Especially because like I mentioned to you, Legion sponsors the podcast. So it was kind of cool that you mentioned that, uh, especially without knowing that they do, but, um, we, we work with Legion and it, and it, I've said this before, but it's really cool. Cause this is the second study I've heard of that they, they, uh, actually funded the other one there wasn't even a supplement product in it so it was literally just them funding a study to better the industry um and that wasn't mike or the team telling me that they do that to brag it was i found out through listening to eric helms talking on a podcast and then through you emailing me so it was just really cool to to hear that because it just kind of goes to show like what they're doing is important and there's not that many supplement yeah. companies that do a good job like that and and let alone put their product in a, in a study that could very well come back and say, actually, your product just doesn't even work, <laughs> you yeah. know, but um, obviously, hopefully that's not the case. But um, tell us about the study. What, what are you guys even trying to test and what are, what are your hopeful outcomes? Yeah, so I will answer that. But just to um, just because you mentioned it, that other study might actually also be one that's funded in our labs because Legion has studied, has funded another study in our lab okay. um, that's on creatine and hair loss. So it is one where they don't have a like there's no well, outcome that will benefit them. But that's I don't not is the that one. the one you were talking about? No, I was thinking of a, a lean gain study that. Um, oh, okay. Well, never mind then. Yeah, I think it's. I, I, won't, I won't get us down that other path. Then. Yeah, I, well, I think it's Eric Helms, and then I can't remember the other guy's name, but I believe he lives in Costa Rica. And I. Oh, okay. Awesome. I don't know if you know who I'm talking about, but he's uh he has a podcast too. Um, he's a cool guy, but uh, but no, that I mean that makes three, so that's really cool. Okay. Well, yeah, no, uh, I won't. I'll answer your original question now. So yeah, Legion Athletics recently. Um, funded and we are screening participants probably as we speak I hear banging of weights back there so I think like as we speak right now <laughs> my research team is screening participants but um, they funded a study that will be an interesting pre-workout supplementation study um, it'll have three conditions uh, two of the three are their pulse pre-workout products so they have a caffeinated and non-caffeinated version of their pulse pre-workout um, which is really cool pre-workout studies are challenging in that you you take an ingredient it's an important question because these are multi-ingredient supplements that people buy off the shelves they use uh, mechanistically they're difficult because if you see a given effect um, or even absence of effect it's hard to tease out the relevance of each individual ingredient because you have you know multiple ingredients in the product so what we're particularly excited about with this study is we essentially have the same identical pre-workout same manufacturer same dosing etc um, except really the difference is the, the stimulant free versus the, the stimulant. Um, and then we'll also have a, a placebo condition. So in this study, we'll recruit, uh, or we are recruiting, currently screening resistance trained uh, males and females 
they'll come into the laboratory three different times. So each of the two pre-workouts as well as the placebo beverage, um, I won't bore with the details, but we're going through um, many steps to ensure blinding of our research team and of the participants and flavor matching and presentation supplements and everything to not give um, any clues to what's what to, to anyone involved in the performance outcomes or data analysis, um, in, including myself. So um, in this study, we'll, we'll bring participants in, they'll consume a standardized breakfast, they'll wait um, a small standardized breakfast, wait 30 minutes, they'll ingest the pre-workout, wait 30 more minutes. Um, we'll put them through a warm-up protocol, and then we'll do some testing on our mechanical squat device, which I mentioned earlier. So this is kind of a big frame that you get under, and you're just performing a, a squat movement. And we can, we can get a bunch of variables from this. So at a particular knee angle, we'll have participants pushed as hard and fast as they can. And we, we can look at peak isometric force at the midpoint of the squat, as well as their um, rate of force development. We also have an actual isokinetic test. So often isokinetic tests are done with single joint movements like knee extension and flexion. Um, but we actually have this nice multi-joint movement, which is obviously relevant in the squat um, that we can test. So uh, in the isokinetic test, it's, it's pretty challenging. I, I can speak to it as someone who's been under the machine myself, but you stand under this mechanical squat device, it counts down three, two, one, and it, it just gradually crushes you. So no matter how much you resist, it just crushes you over the course of a four second eccentric phase it pauses and then you have to push up on it as hard and fast as you can. Um, but it takes four seconds to complete the concentric phase, no matter how hard you push. So, you know, of course we're in like screaming at the participants, encouraging them all that, but we're quantifying their, uh, eccentric and concentric force from that device. Uh, after that device, we'll do kind of some more standard interpretable, um, tests. So we'll get their one repetition maximum on bench press as well as repetitions to failure. And then we'll do the same thing on a plate loaded, um, leg press. Uh, and then we'll also be monitoring some subjectives like um, energy and fatigue throughout, uh, throughout the trial. So yeah, our, our plan is to bring in 24 total participants and have each of them do all three of those conditions. Um, so this will run, I mean, we're starting day collection now, it'll run at least through the summer. It'll just depend on how quick um, recruitment goes. But uh, again, we're pretty excited about it. We feel like it's a relevant question. Um, uh, you could probably speak to this as well, but I, I feel like I see more and more stimulant-free pre-workouts. And I think some of it is targeted at individuals who train in the evening. And um, even if they enjoy the effects of caffeine for their workout, they don't enjoy the after effects of not being able to fall asleep till two or three in the morning. So I think for individuals who are caffeine sensitive in general, um, or who train in the evening, this could be particularly relevant if we see uh, beneficial effects of the, the non-caffeinated um, supplement. And in general, you know, it's often kind of said like, oh, pre-workouts are just like caffeine and everything else is just thrown in for marketing. Yeah. Um, and, and here we have a nice product that's, um, has evidence-based dosages of these non-caffeine ingredients. So we'll be able to, um, kind of get an indication on that front, um, as to, uh, you know, can, can this pre-workout be effective beyond, uh, placebo, even, even without the caffeine. Yeah. And I think that that's the thing I was going to say is like, if it was a different, like if it was just uh, decaf coffee versus regular coffee, I would expect like maybe a potential placebo. Cause I've accidentally drank decaf coffee and didn't notice thought I had, you know, and yeah. it's has an effect, but Legion actually has some good ingredients in that. So maybe those yeah. are carrying value. And I've always too, like, is it worth the money to, to get beta alanine and citrulline malate and all these different little things and now betaine and like, is it worth it? Yep. Especially when betaine is a great example of some good research, but it, it's, it's like creatine. Like you don't take it and go, Whoa, like I feel that, you know, and like yeah. pre-workout's nice where you, your skin gets a little tingly. You're like, okay, this is working, I think. And, um, yeah. but betaine, creatine, you have to be patient with that. Um, so that'll be cool. I'm really excited for that too. I think that's good. That's, I mean, I've, I've used their stimulant free, 
more than their uh, stimulant one because I drink caffeine through the day and then I train in the afternoon. So it's the same thing and it yeah. still tends to work, but it could be placebo. But if, for me personally, I think it's, it's, it's effective and it'll be cool to see the study to, to prove that right or wrong. Thanks. Yeah, no, we're, we're thrilled to be doing it. Can you say anything about the creatine and hair loss thing? Yeah. So this is, um, you know, it's crazy. I get, I get multiple, I need to talk to Mike about this, but I get multiple emails a week about this study. So we, <laughs> we registered it on clinicaltrials.gov and examine.com, I think tweeted out something about it a while ago. Um, so unfortunately we were about to start data collection in March, 2020. So like we uh. were, we were down, we were just coordinating. They were going to, you know, send the creatine, all this. And then our campus gets totally shut down and obviously everyone gets shut down. Um, in the summer when we, when we could resume research, the university told us not to do any long-term studies. And this is a six month long study. So like only do short things, like in case we get shut down again, this or that. So essentially here we are a year later and, and data collection, unfortunately hasn't started. We're hopeful that it'll start later this spring. Um, but this is essentially, and I credit Eric Trexler for kind of making the connection here with um, Legion. Uh, you maybe remember the the Stronger by Science article published on creatine. It's just yeah. a monster article. And uh, if you hear Eric talk about it, he's like, the only thing people were interested in was the section on hair loss. <laughs> yeah. There's just like a little blurb saying like, there's one study in rugby players where DHT was elevated with creatine loading. We know that DHT is involved in like shrinking the hair follicle um, in for male pattern baldness because of some of the, the androgen receptor uh, effects there specific to the scalp. Um and it was just like what, what everyone was interested in. And I can now attest to that as just like having an obscure like trial database somewhere, my email there, I get multiple emails a week about like, do you have results yet? It's like, I want to take creatine, but I'm, I'm worried I'm gonna lose my hair. So a big picture, it's pretty simple. We're putting people on um, creatine for six months. We're going to look at um, DHT, testosterone, their ratio. And we're also actually gonna actually look at hair loss. So we have a little photography studio set up, professional camera equipment. We have a MD, PhD dermatologist um, who's on board, who's going to be like a, a rater of the, the hair assessments throughout the study. Um, but more or less, it's like taking five grams of creatine a day for six months and looking at if there truly is a sustained elevation of DHT, because uh, there, to me, definitely some question marks about that one um, short-term study that showed the, the elevation of DHT. Uh, and then also looking at, at, you know, hair loss as an actual outcome. So um, hopefully kind of, you know, mostly coming out of COVID times here, hopefully we'll be good to go on that data collection. But um, yeah, so it's unfortunately been delayed, but, but Legion was generous enough just to support that study as well. Yeah, it's funny because I, uh, Eric actually coached me basically for my training and nutrition all last year. And he introduced me to Brandon, who's now our CSO. Um, and I've read that article. I've referred that article a bunch of times. And uh, that's the only thing I've ever asked him about that article <laughs> is his opinions on that. And, and, you know, for me, is it's actually funny, like, most of the men in my family are bald or balding and I'm the only one uh, besides my brother, but he's starting to thin out that has a full yeah. head of hair and I'm the only one that takes creatine and I've taken yeah. creatine every single day for the last, I don't know how many years. It's just like been the one staple supplement. So man, if we, if we see that creatine causes hair growth, that's going to be like a, a big newsworthy finding. So it's like, not only did it not cause hair loss, but these guys actually have a thicker, fuller head yeah. of hair after supplementing with creatine. <laughs> Let's only hope. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, man, I, I could probably go on and on about so many talks because you're, you're a wealth of knowledge. Um, but I want to respect your time. It's been about an hour. So I appreciate you coming on, man. It's been a blast. And uh, hopefully maybe we can have you on again and kind of dive into some of this other research that you've done on body comp assessments and stuff like that. Because I think um, what you what you research and what you're putting out in the field is not only just super beneficial for the industry, but it's very, very uh, relevant for my audience. So I would love to have you back on if you're open to it. Um, awesome. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, tell everybody where they can find you. Um, 
if you have website, Instagram, blog, where your research goes or anything like that, um, anything you want to, I know sometimes researchers are like, well, I can't publish all of that stuff. So um, anywhere you can send people so they can learn more from you, drop it yeah. right now. Yeah. So I have a personal website. It's just www.granttinsley.com. So just my name, I have links to all my social media there. I have links to our research articles, pictures of the lab, introductions to the research team, kind of everything like that. Um, I'm probably most active on Instagram and my handle is just grant underscore Tinsley underscore PhD. Um, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, but again, probably most active on Instagram. So I'll definitely post about our, our published research and kind of things going on in the lab and uh, miscellaneous things like that. So yeah, I'd be happy to connect. Perfect. I'll, I'll link all that in the show notes for you guys listening. And uh, if you guys do want to hear more of Grant, literally go to iTunes and just search his name because I did that just to do a little <laughs> bit extra homework for this podcast. And he's been on countless podcasts and there's so many great episodes out there. So just search his name. You'll find a bunch of stuff and, and you can learn from him. But um, once again, man, thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Great talking with you. 